and welcome to this month's episode of Silver Divorce, How to Simplify a Painful Process, starring our host, Peter Newerth, who is an actuary and author and the founder of Newerth Associates, which is an organization that helps people do a lot of things, especially silver divorce or including silver divorce. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. And we are thrilled to be here with James Schaefer, a forensic accountant who has done an amazing amount of work to help couples figure this stuff out. So I am not going to steal the show here. I am just going to throw it over to Pete and take it away. Well, thanks a lot, Hope. And Jim, thanks so much for joining me. As Hope indicated, uh, Jim, you are a forensic accountant and and really one of the very best in the business. And I think just because maybe our audience is not completely familiar with what forensic accountants do, Maybe could you could you start by telling us just a little bit about what a forensic accountant is and how, you know, what you do in the context of, uh, of divorce? Okay, a forensic accountant, the word forensic means related to a court of law. So I deliver the facts to the court through the appropriate channels for the court to be and make its ruling. And I can act either as for one party or as a neutral if appointed. Okay. So I guess, I mean, I had the sense that forensic accounting or forensics of all sorts is kind of like digging into, you know, dead bodies or dead marriages, I guess, in this cases and finding out where uh, where things came from and what's what's there now. Isn't there a kind of a historical digging aspect that um, is involved in forensic accounting? Well, it may require digging. When we say we're talking about analyzing facts and more importantly, locating the facts, because the court doesn't have the time and the attorney doesn't have the skills. So you have to know which facts are needed to prove the, the attorney's case. And then you have to find them and organize them in a way that the court can understand them, because you have to realize the court has very limited time and the team for husband or wife knows the facts a whole lot more than the court does. And let me mention, since I use the terms husband and wife, in no way do I mean to demean same-sex couples. I'm just using that for the sake of convenience. Sure. And uh, but it, So it sounds like your job is almost exclusively for attorneys and is part of the legal process. Um, does that mean a forensic accountant cannot be part of divorce without attorneys? Or is that I mean, do you ever work with CFPs and, and others who are helping the couple kind of figure out what they want to do in divorce? Or is it only after the lawyers are involved that you get involved? Firstly, I only work for attorneys. There may be some forensic accountants who are CPAs that work with others, but I don't. Okay. All right. Well, that's that's uh, that's that's good. All right. So now we sort of sort of know what you what you do and where you play in this whole ecosystem. Um, and I'd like to get down to some of the brass tacks and some of the more technical aspects of um, silver divorce, because as we both know, divorce is a very, very technical and complicated financial enterprise, particularly in the, in the kinds of divorces that I uh, consult about, which is divorces between uh, 
couples that are older and are looking are close to retirement and are considered- oh come on I hate that word older uh, okay we're all young at heart <laughs> it's true well in in any event um, one of the things that I thought was just fascinating about uh, your practice, Jim, is that you've produced a bunch of uh, really stimulating and very, very instructive videos. One of the m- more interesting, uh, and it's a series of, of videos, and maybe you can talk a little bit about the entire series, but the ones that I thought were really fascinating was the ones on hoodwinkers and um, confusicators and various other things. Can you talk a little bit about what do you mean by hoodwinkers and confusicators and what what should people be aware of when these things happen? In a world where there are rules and there's ethics, but there's no penalties for disobeying the, the rules and the ethics. So when you're talking about divorce, there's typically a party that has financial knowledge and there's other party that does not have financial knowledge. There's typically one party that has a favorable position in the divorce and one that has unfavorable position in the divorce. So as it goes along and the one side prepares a report and delivers it to the opposing side, they say, hokey smokes, we're in trouble. Prepare your report and make it good. This is for the weaker side. So the forensic accountant on that side of the case says, what am I going to do? I got the facts against me. So they either hold the line or they dip into the confusicator hoodwink bucket and come up with something. And my videos are based upon roughly actual cases where someone moved into the hoodwink bucket and used one of these tools. So there is no punishment. I simply shine the light on it so that hopefully we don't see that hoodwink very often. Can you give me an example of what a confusicator might do and how you would uncover or expose that confusication? I haven't heard of a confusication, <laughs> but I like, I'm going to have to use that word. So let me give you some, some background. So it's been told to me that approximately 90% of cases settle. So in preparing for, for settlement, when you're trying to make your case better than the facts support, you prepare a report and you put in all kinds of numbers and schedules and you don't indicate where the numbers come from. It's what I have a term for that's my own, not confusication, but it's a trust me report. So you get a trust me report and it differs very much from perhaps my report. So it's Both reports are 30 pages long, and what is appropriate step then to combat the confusication is to summarize where the difference, why is one side say the support is $1,000 a month, other says it's $10,000 a month. And you look in the back, and lo and behold, back in in the the knitting numbers, someone made an error which is either intentional or not intentional. And it's hidden. So through various analysis, you find it, number one, and then you expose it by preparing a report called a side-by-side report. So what we do, we fight confusicators with the light of, of fact. Well, what strikes me as, as odd, that at least in, in the actuarial world, 
I mean, there are significant uh, guides to professional conduct and ethical constraints and actuaries when they prepare an actuarial report. It has to be readable and understandable and accessible by another actuary. I mean, that's that's sort of a fundamental principle of actuarial science. Is there not a kind of similar uh, ethical guidelines and, and guidelines to practice in forensic accounting that would prevent things like confusication? There are guidelines of supervision in Ponzi scheme investigations and fraud investigations where you're hired essentially by the federal court and you're working with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. But when you're in the area of divorce, those safeguards are, are there, but they're ineffective and they're not followed. So sounds like it's, um, I don't know, if, is that the fault of the law or is that the fault of just kind of developed practice? Is it just, how did such a situation arise? At one time, it was supervised by the judges. The judges know who the good people are and who the bad people are, or the the confusicators and the non-confusicators. But over time, the judges turn over quite frequently, uh -huh. and there's a lot of financial incentive to be a, a hoodwinker. Yes, and um, I guess it is part of what creates uh, financial inefficiencies when you've got not just dueling lawyers, but dueling forensic accountants. Is this usually fought out in court, or is this usually fought out in, a, in front of a mediator, or is it fought out between the parties? I mean, how do, how do these things typically get resolved? Well, if the stats are right, the 90% of the cases settle, they are, are settled among the parties without going to court, or most of them are settled by the parties, and then the ones that are not agreed go to court. But do the parties need a judge, or are they can they work it out between themselves? Do they need a mediator? Are there are there other third party unbiased referees that get involved? Or I mean, you say ninety percent settle. Does that mean they settle during mediation, or do they settle just because the two lawyers get together and the parties come to a meeting of the minds and sign an agreement? The short answer is yes. <laughs> all of the all of the above. Well, what's the long answer? I mean, where 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 do you see? I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to get a um, and give our audience kind of a, a a sense of the the texture of this of this playing field. And I, I've already they've already showed me that it's it's a it's almost a confrontation. It's a it's an ad it's an almost an adversarial, usually an adversarial situation where you've got one. Uh, forensic accountant saying this is the way the facts are. This is what the marital balance sheet is, and this is where what's community property. This is what's, and the other is contesting it. But I'm trying to get at well. Let's put it this way: What do you think the most efficient way to get those uh, conflicts resolved? Is it through mediation? Is it through just face-to-face -face negotiations, or what? The most efficient way is through a technique called a side-by-side -side analysis, where each side has a column. The issues are on the left, and column A is, is husband's column, column B is wife's column, and you, each side puts their number down, and 
the, the difference is analyzed or discussed. So you prepare what your number is for your client, and then you add a column why your answer is right and the other side is wrong. Right. That gets that gets to it very quickly. The judge doesn't want to spend time, or the mediator doesn't want to spend time on the areas of agreement. They want to focus on where the differences are. Now, I've, I've heard of situations like that where the court will appoint a um, a seven thirty expert to actually be the referee because never don't do that. Okay, <laughs> you don't like the what? You don't like the number seven thirty, or you don't like the, the 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 concept of a referee? Or I mean, why if 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 the two sides? I mean, let's just say we've got two confusicators um, up against each other. Um, who's going to who's going to sort it out? I mean, don't you need a referee? Don't you need somebody who can kind of help the judge or the mediator understand who's confusicating and who's not? Well, that really happens. What generally happens with the 730 is that they either don't have the talent or don't have the, the have a bias one side or the other. And you would think that if you have one forensic accountant acting as a neutral, that that's cheaper than every party having their own. But what ends up is when you have a neutral, then you have three forensic accountants. Each party has a forensic accountant, plus the court has a forensic accountant. And then it's harder for the non-confusicator, the fact finder, fact teller, to overcome the position of the, of the 730 because they've got the thumb on the scale for the court. They have the benefit of the court's quote belief that they are neutral, but it's but, a bad scene. And, and but I do make a lot of money overcoming the 730s position. So maybe we need more of them. <laughs> so it's it's good for business is what you're saying. Great for business. And I've heard you say this informally that um what you don't like is if if you are going to get a, a um a 730 expert or a referee or some neutral third party expert here against the idea of having a CFP, a certified financial planner? Well, first of all, is that is that the case or is that my misinterpreting your view on that? It depends upon the case. If it's a simple case, I'm all for it, a CFP. But if it's a, a highly technical case involving large dollars, uh, actuarial uh, matters, retirement matters. Uh, some of the records aren't there and you have to work around the, the problem. I think that's beyond the skills of a CF, of the typical CFP. I, I, I had a CFP that used to work for me. She was smarter than me. I mean, she was, she was brilliant and I learned a lot from her, but she didn't have the technical skills to take over the practice. So she went on and did other things. The counter argument might be, the other argument about in, in favor of CFPs is that as a CFP, you've kind of got the whole big picture and the CFP has a better understanding of the, of the entire uh, situation. Whereas maybe the forensic accountants are battling over one aspect of the marital balance sheet or another. And it might be helpful to have somebody who, can look at the entire big picture. But what I'm hearing you say is it's really important that 
that CFP know what they don't know? Yes, and what's important in my world is following the instructions of counsel and knowing what the court needs and knowing what the attorney has to prove and what the legal elements are that have to be proven with facts and documents and given in a way to the court that the court will understand it. For example, I used to work under the supervision of a master mediator. Everyone wanted to bring his cases to him. And he said to me, Jim, your schedules are too complicated. More than three columns or five lines or I won't read them. You got to know that. Right. I worked with presentations with a excellent judge. He used to be a supervising judge for the department. And we did presentations, so we got to know each other pretty well. And he explained to me one time that there was a local, 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 local rule. And that means in his court only. If the print was too small, he didn't have to read it. <laughs> okay. And I suspect that's probably um, more than local. I mean, I think I suspect there are, there are plenty of other judges that uh, don't read the small print as well. But speaking of small print and technical matters, I wanted to move to one, a couple of issues that might appear simple, but in fact are not. And um, the, the the most obvious one is real estate and, and the house. And, um, I, you know, I only recently became aware of this concept of a more Marsden calculation where even though it's, even though you think, you know, one spouse owns the house or it's owned jointly, that's not really necessarily the case that there can be partials, separate property interests and not all community. And that is largely as a result of Moore's Marsden calculations, or am I, I mean, maybe you could, I, I probably am, am butchering what, what a Moore Marsden calculation is, um, but it does seem like that's kind of the key to determining who owns the house and how to, how that interest gets split. Is that right? Well, we're talking here about great divorce. Yes. So yeah. let's 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 talk about a case that is simple. You got two parties. They they graduate from from college. They get married. They buy a house. Twenty years, thirty, 30 years, forty years later, they get divorced. Okay, all the money that went into the house was community money. So all you do is take the, the value of the equity of the house and cut it in two. My my grandchildren would call that easy peasy. Right. The problem is there are so few easy peasy cases because one party came into the house with, with owning a residence. During marriage, the community started paying the, the mortgage principal payments. There was a refi. There was a title change. There was, was another refi, and that money went into a, a painting that's hanging in the living room. So now you've got a painting and you've got a a residence to deal with. So the, the short story is the parties that put their money into it get their money back, and the appreciation, once it's figured out, it's a portion between the parties that contributed to buying the house. But beyond that, it's all based upon facts. A more margin is easy if you know what the facts are. So one side says, I paid 
for the house and the monthly payments with my separate property. On the other side says, prove it. But the bank statements are gone. So there's either a settlement or there's something happens because there are, are presumptions and law that are involved in family law cases. Is it really so simple if you know all the facts? Let's say if in a gray or silver divorce, you know, you're going to have separate property as well as community property. And if and if some of the some of the money that's pulled out of the refinance is given to one or the other spouse or creates additional separate property. I mean, doesn't doesn't things don't things get pretty complicated when you uh, in determining what's what's separate and what's community, even in a normal house situation? Well, there's facts, there's numbers, and there's law. So you have to take the facts, know the law, and add the numbers up according to the law. And that is not always easy. And that's yeah. why there are differences, because one party or one forensic does not understand the law as well as the other side. Ah, so part of being a good forensic accountant is knowing the law, it sounds like. You can't practice the law, but the more law you know, the more you'll be successful. You have to acknowledge that the attorneys are very busy. They're the ones that, that focus on family law solely are typically very talented but they're incredibly busy. So you need to be able to, it's like if you watch NCIS and Gibbs and the, Tim McGee says to the other guy, asks, what is Gibbs like? And Tim says, you gotta anticipate what Gibbs wants. Uh -huh. That is the key. And that's, that. after doing this for, for at least 20 years, an accountant for 50 years, it's not always easy to anticipate. So that's why I'm reluctant to say a CFP can handle every case. Right. But I, I but it's it also sounds like there it's important that forensic accountants uh, know the law or the it'd be better to them know the family law, but it also sounds like it would be better if more family lawyers understood forensic accountants and accounting. I mean, do you find that 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 generally family lawyers understand what you do? A retired appellate justice and I gave 12 presentations on that very subject. I'm not sure we were very effective because they didn't change much, but they came out of respect and they listened carefully and they went back to their cars with a smile on their face. But I think they went back to their old ways. I wanted to, I mean, we don't have a tremendous amount of time, but I wanted to uh, dig into one really potentially most, maybe the most problematic aspect of, uh, of gray or silver divorces, which is what you alluded to earlier, which is data and, um, and facts. And, you know, because facts come from data and data comes from historical statements and these days when banks are getting rid of their records after seven or 10 years, how do you deal with the lack of um, historical information? Well, it depends upon the case. Each one's different. There was a multimillionaire, maybe a piece of a billionaire, and he was the kind of guy that said, Jim, I'm not going to waste my time on this, getting you this, unless it makes a difference. So I tell him, 
okay, these facts and information are going to cost you $200,000 if you don't find it. Well, he called the president of the bank, and you know what? They found it. So in other cases, you have to take indirect and, and intuition to find it, particularly when you're dealing with retirement assets. You have to take a combination of knowledge of tax law, pension law, to the little extent that I understand that. I use an expert such as yourself, the tax returns, the statements, and if it's a chief executive officer, even perhaps SEC documents. And when I'm really desperate, I come up with a timeline of the last 40 years of employment. And this company had a 401k plan. This one had a pension plan. This one had a SEP. And that some has rolled over to whatever. And with statement from one of those, I can find a point in time to know what was happening. And I know from the tax returns, if I have it, that a distribution is going to be shown in the tax return. So I know there aren't distributions. And if there's any contributions to a separate IRA, I know that they're there. So it's like all these moving parts have to come together into a story. Well, sounds like a, a lot of detective work uh, in those circumstances, but it also sounds like maybe when a bank says we don't have the records, that's not strictly true. And that by pushing and, and not giving up and maybe, you know, calling the president, you can actually get documents that theoretically, supposedly were not around. Is that, um, is that sort of what you're saying? Particularly, particularly if you have a brokerage relationship and you've got a broker that was with brokerage house one and moved to two and then to three and you moved among each of them and they have lots of mergers. That broker knows that someday he's going to need that information and typically it's in his bottom drawer in the back gathering dust. So if you're creative, you can find it. Okay. Well, that's that. That's really that's really good to know. So we're coming to the end here, and I wanted to um, talk about well, one statement that you made, which kind of intrigued me, was that I think you said if you want to settle, prepare for trial. If you if you prepare for if you if you prepare for settlement, you're going to end up in trial. If you prepare for trial, you're going to end up in settlement. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and maybe leave us with some some of your wisdom about how should a couple that's about to get divorced or thinking about divorce how should they proceed in the most efficient way if the goal is to get to the end as quickly and efficiently as possible. Okay, if they want to be efficient, I've taken 150 years of experience and put it in a nine-minute video called A Mediator's Perspective on Efficient Settlement. There's about six steps, and to summarize, you, you produce the documents from both sides, and you create a environment of trust. Both sides trust each other. And then you create a, a balance sheet where first column is all the assets and liabilities. The next two columns are the separate property of each of the parties. The next column is the community assets. And then from there, you divide up the community assets. So if you don't agree, if the parties don't agree on one of the line items, 
then everybody drills down on the facts on that particular line item and get to an agreement, either based on the facts or based upon arm wrestling or based upon a cut of cards. I don't care. So you have not only the trust, but what that does particularly is with one the spouse that is not as financially sophisticated can see this is what I'm going to get. And when you find out what you're going to get, then you step into the world of the CFPs. That is, am I going to be able to live on that? Am I going to be survive? Am I going to be able to take my kids? Are my children going to be able to go to graduate school with me funding or they're going to have to take out loans? Am I going to be able to live the rest of my life? So that marital balance sheet has a number of purposes and is the key to getting it over with. So if I could kind of summarize and bring it, boil it down, you got to you got to find a way to build trust and you got to and you have to have a marital balance sheet that everybody can agree represents the facts. And with those two things in place, you should be able to get to a mediated settlement. And I guess of that in of those two things you're the expert in developing that marital balance sheet that everybody should agree to. And I guess it's the lawyer's job to develop that trust because that seems to be the thing that, you know, it's almost the first casualty in, in divorce is trust. And um, how you- Oh, that's why there was a divorce. It's because there was no trust. Right, right. But it sounds to me like it's not hopeless that you you believe that, it is possible, even when one of the parties is uh, not as sophisticated as the other and might not have, but with good lawyers, you should be able to develop trust. Well, if you've got the doubting spouse, his or her attorney should be able to, to get make them realistic because the attorney looks at the presentation and the documents and pretty much knows how it's going to be resolved by the court. And then the, the doubting spouse can ask the, the important question, if we go to court, how much is it going to cost me? Right. Sometimes all doubt goes away when you know it's going to cost you 50000 75000 or a quarter of a million to move on to the next step. Right, right. Well, and this is, uh, I mean, I think this is fantastic. You've sort of distilled it to its essence, which is you got to build trust. You got to have the facts. You got to have the the balance sheet and you know and you have to look at the, the a mediator's perspective on efficient settlement right and one of, my, one of my friends that's a retired commissioner wrote back to me when he looked at it he said that is a video that every litigant forensic accountant and attorney working in family law should view well it sounds to me like those videos themselves could save a lot of money and a lot of a lot of time to a lot of a lot of couples out there. And they're free. Can you, uh, we, we should, before this ends, we should, you know, post up, you know, the where you can, where you can find your videos, or maybe you could just sort of tell us. And once this podcast gets out there and, and posted, we'll make sure that links to, to those videos are there. Because I, I mean, I've watched a few of them. I haven't watched them all, but they're, they're really terrific. It's important to note that they're free and they're a matter of professional pride. Well, and you you are you are the consummate professional and I really really appreciate you you being here Jim and um good luck on the next one. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you both and we will have these links all over 
the postings, but you can see the videos at vimeo.com backslash channels backslash common divorce issues. Again, vimeo.com backslash channels backslash common divorce issues. And you can learn all about Jim at shafercpa.com. And what I didn't say in the beginning is that Jim began his professional career with Pete Marwick in 1972. And in 85, he formed his own CPA practice. And indeed, for more than 20 years, he has focused on family law forensic accounting. What an interesting conversation, gentlemen. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Jim. Look for more on Spotify, iTunes, iHeart, and of course, Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show. Thank you so much. PeterNewworth.com. Go check it out. And NewworthAssociates.consulting, which is a new website that we will be launching this year. So this is our December issue, episode number three of Silver Divorce, How to Simplify a Painful Process. Good luck to everyone going through it. And we look forward to talking to you again next month. We'll take care. 